Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Empires of the Future. I am one of your hosts, Denton Ice, sitting here with Mr. Jackson Van Dyke, uh, and I'm pretty excited today. I'm pretty excited uh, for various reasons. One reason is because this is the last and final installment of C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity that we're going to talk about today. Um, it's been a great book. Absolutely. Love the book. I've loved talking about it. Loved reading it. Uh, but it has been a long podcast, hasn't it? Or a long, it, uh, long way coming. Yeah. And, you know, even uh, we just sat and, and had lunch and, and talked about kind of, uh, it certainly, I think, made us excited to talk about a few different other things. And we talked about some ideas for the future. And, you know, even thinking about how to approach books, um, we're planning in the future to uh, move more quickly through the books that we have in mind. Um, but I will say that uh, these chapters have been worth talking about because mm -hmm. there are a lot of good ideas. And I mean, frankly, he's talking about eternal ideas. He's talking about the ideas that are present in the Bible. And he's, I mean, what he seemed to have done is pick the ones that are foundational and also the ones that, to his mind, we have not handled well. Mm -hmm and have been mishandled are being passed down in a wrong way. And, and that's what he's done in the book all the way down to now. And uh, this will be this, maybe this podcast will be a little more spicy. I know you just mentioned that there's some things in chapter yeah. 10 specifically that, that you're not quite sure about. And um, it is with something as important as Christianity. I mean, I'm almost in a GK Chesterton kind of mindset here. Look, it's, it's so important that it's worth sorting out and you cannot just accept the first thing you hear. And often we do. We are not discerning about uh, Christianity. We're not discerning about spiritual issues. And that's a big part of the problem. We, are, we accept sort of the lowest common denominator or the easiest answer, uh, and that's bad. Mm -hmm. uh, we do that, and, and it's not surprising we do that in terms of spiritual health because we do that in terms of physical health too. Um, but to land here is exciting. And, uh, and it's been, it's been wonderful. I, I love this book. I literally, I'm not saying this by any sort of, this is not made up at all. I do love this book every time I go through it. And this is probably literally something like the 17th time I've gone through this book. Oh, I yeah. find so, I found not just one thing. I find five, 10 things useful. And, and even if you go, I don't even know what you mean by that, or I'm not quite sure worth reflecting on, worth thinking about. They said, again, they're eternal things. Yep. They're, they're things that Literally, we can think uh, in in life in the kingdom when we have died and the next age has come, we'll reflect on these things for eternity. But we need to know about a lot of them now. That's right, and that's why it's useful. That's right. So we're excited, excited to finish this thing off, and about what's uh, coming up around the corner. We've talked about a few ideas of some of the next couple podcasts that we're going to be doing. Uh, excited for those. So a lot of reasons to be excited. I'm excited that your uh, uh, your house is uh, is accessible now. We <laughs> yeah, we this this podcast almost didn't get recorded. I got a call uh, from my wife that she uh, had accidentally walked out of our back door, which latched behind her, and she and our three children were all locked out of the house. And so, uh, uh, thankfully, she's good with tools uh, and could get the door off the hinges, and she's back in. Yeah, uh, I've so I've got some funny like locked out of the house stories. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell one real quick. Okay. Uh, I have a cousin, uh, cousin, you remember my cousin Colin? Yes. Uh, used to, uh, to be here around first Southern all the time and everything sort of, uh, while his dad worked night shift, uh, he lived with us a lot, spent a lot of time at our house. And I remember one time he was, um, uh, kind of middle school age coming into high school age, kind of sorta. And he was, uh, 
going to stay home while we ran out to get some stuff done. And we get home after being gone for like three hours running errands and doing things. He was going to stay home and kind of do some homework and stuff like that. Uh, just lounge around the house, I guess. And we get home after being gone for like three hours. And he's sitting out on the patio <laughs> blowing bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> which you know <laughs> if you're it, locked out it's that's just probably a, the best thing yeah, to do it's just a funny thing seeing a, like a freshman in high school just sitting in this chair blowing bubbles and, pulling. <laughs> and we get out and we're like man what are you doing why are you sitting out here blowing bubbles and he said well about 10 minutes after you left i came out to bring the trash outside and shut the door behind me and when i came back the door was locked and so he sat out in like the heat of the day for like two and a half hours yeah. while we ran errands. And there was nothing to do. He didn't have the code to the garage, didn't have a key to get back in. So there just happened to be some bubbles out next <laughs> to the garage. And he just sat there and entertained himself by blowing <laughs> bubbles. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth bubbles. Yeah. Oh, it was so funny. It felt so bad for this him. This is but. what God had for me in these three hours. Yeah. <laughs> he left oh. me some bubbles. That's right. That's, That's really right. funny. It was. It was. But uh, I can't say much. I've been locked out of my house plenty of times. And, uh, I would say I've been locked out of my car way more than I've been locked out of my house. That's worse. I think. Right, probably. Because usually when I'm locked out of my car, I'm at like a place I don't know. Usually my cell phone is also in my car. Yeah. So it's like, okay, now I have to track someone down. Yeah, and it's way more awkward to be like sitting at AutoZone or something just locked out of your car, <laughs> you know. Yes, <laughs> it's the worst. But at any rate, a lot to be excited about. We're excited to get uh, get going and jumping into this podcast. Uh, so chapter 10 yep. of the final book in C.S. Lewis's work, Mere Christianity, and he gets to something here in chapter 10, which is where we're going to dive in today. Um, it really just gets at something that answers a question that a lot of people have, or maybe even speaks to misconceptions that people have about yeah. what Christianity is, how it can be identified, whether or not it can be easily identified in a person. Uh, and the, the title of the chapter, and you might pick up on this from the title, is called Nice People or New Men. Um, and one of the questions that he gets at, and you have it in the in the title here, um, is that is the question of why aren't all Christians nicer than non-Christians? Yeah. I think this is something that most of us have thought about, wrestled with, or maybe been quick to rush to judgments of people yeah. based on how pleasant they are, how nice they are. Um, in a sense, you might say how much of <clears throat> excuse me the the sinful nature or the old man is kind of still shining through in a person. Yeah. And he kind of in, engages with this sort of dialogue or this question of of making claims or statements about a person, whether or not they're truly a Christian or are a Christian, based on how good, quote-unquote, you perceive them to be or how yeah. nice you perceive yep. them to yep. be or, or whatever, how much they look like your vision of what a Christian ought to look right. like. And... It gets to the question of what does it mean to be a Christian or to, to be um, a person called and and redeemed by God. Yeah. Because we all agree that Christians are to look different than the world. Yep. Um, or at the at the least, and this is one of the things he gets I think is important, we're at least to look different than who we were before Christ yeah. or who we are without Christ. Um, and that 
is an important distinction that he makes. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at someone and you're comparing people, you can, uh, as he kind of brings up, you can have a really nice non-churched, non-Christian, doesn't claim to be Christ, yep. or doesn't claim Christ, uh, a person that is just far more pleasant to be around than Joe Schmo down the street who is a Christian but is just kind of unpleasant, grumpy, stern, whatever you might, whatever the case might be. Yeah. It's it's sometimes easy for the outside world to conclude, well, this guy seems like a Christian more than Joe Schmo, who's still kind of a, a grump, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and he's he's talking about the question of whether or not that's a true assessment. Is that person rightly judged to be a Christian based upon how they compare in niceness or in temperament to this other person? Yep. And it's an important question. Why is it an important question, Jackson? Well, yeah, I mean— uh, the way you treat people matters and no matter uh where you fall on sort of the answer to this question which is a really hard question to answer uh from a standpoint of uh, though uh, i think we're we're going to move pretty quickly towards arguing that being nice is not the end all be all but at the same time uh christians have different opinions on how nice should you be on any given moment and frankly i've met some christians that uh, and, and, and most specifically, um, pastors who are not really nice at all and don't seem to be thinking that that's a particular call of theirs. And I, I have found that uh, funny. Uh, yeah, I've met and, those pastors. Yeah. And uh, and so you have that. Um, but then the, the challenge about it is that uh, this is a pretty subjective kind of question. And so... Uh, there are objective parts to the answer, but there are subjective parts to the answer too. That, frankly, uh, as a Christian, you should be approachable. Uh, I, I would describe Jesus as approachable, mm-hmm. but at the same time, uh, I would not at all in any way, shape, or form describe Jesus as a pushover. And I do think sure. behind this question from some people is that I think Christians should be pushovers. And it's like, well, that's not at all the case. Like, right. we literally follow... Uh, the guy who stood up to all the powers of this world uh, and all the powers of the dark forces that are higher than this world and did not back down. The yeah. the literal non-pushover, we yeah. follow him. Uh, and uh, the thing that I say a lot that um, that I, I continue to find perplexing about Jesus is the more I read the Gospels, the more it confirms to me one of the paradoxes about Jesus is he's simultaneously always the softest-hearted person in every room and also the hardest-nosed person in every room. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't know how to do that. I mean, it's one of the goals that I have, but I think for every Christian, you do that even according to your own temperament. It's, it's something that you actually should be praying and asking the Holy Spirit to teach mm-hmm. you how to do it because— a, it's important, but B, you're not going to just figure that out easily no. on your own steam. You can't. It's it's so complex and and tailored to the moment. I mean, one yeah. of the answers that I really have come to is, well, you need to be in prayer in every situation so that you know when to take a stand in a conversation and when to give more grace. A lot of times you just have to ask for help in that because discernment is a hard thing. You don't always just, you can't just operate by pure logic or you definitely can't just operate by pure compassion or emotion. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about the new man that we become in Christ, 
um, versus just being a nice person and, and the distinction drawn there and, and why there is a confusion, especially among the world. Uh, there's a couple reasons for why, and you're hitting at one, where the, the discrepancy happens. One of the reasons it happens is because there is a false perception on the part of some as far as what Christians ought to look like, yeah. what niceness is, what being a good yes. person is. Yes. There's a lot of misconception about what that is. Mm-hmm. There's times when the world thinks that Christians ought to be, like you said, pushovers. Uh, there's times or when never the, say hard things. Or, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's the next thing I was going to get at. Never say hard things as though to speak something that we believe to be true, even though it might be difficult to hear, mm-hmm. that is deemed by many to be unloving, mm-hmm. unchristian, mm-hmm. unkind. Mm-hmm. And so a part of the discrepancy that people have in their in their mind, the world especially, is a false view about what true goodness and kindness and, and being a and nice love person is. Yeah. And yeah, what love is. Um, that's one of the problems. Yep. And you're right. Why there's the distinction or discrepancy. Another one is this idea that some have that to become a Christian means to be made instantly perfected. Mm-hmm. There is a, mm-hmm. a blending. I don't want to even want to say blending, but a, um, a mixing of terms uh, or, or even just what's happening between what we would call regeneration or second birth, um, conversion, and sanctification. Yeah, sure. As Christians, mm-hmm. we believe that at conversion, when we trust in Christ for salvation, when the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, that we do become a new creation in Christ Jesus, that the old has gone, behold, the new has come. Uh, and therefore, we are made into something new, or at least being made into something new, we know that the completion of that uh, is to come in the end at our glorification. Uh, But at conversion, there is a real change that happens. But sanctification, that is the process of being made more and more and more into the image of Christ, uh, is exactly that. It is a process. It is not an instantaneous change. And there there are plenty in the world who think that, well, if you're a Christian, um, then that means you don't ever sin. You don't ever do mean things. Uh, that your demeanor is always and automatically forever one of kindness, grace, uh, compassion, all these things. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, as Christians, we know that's not the case. Right. And C.S. Lewis makes the point, a lot of those things depend on your natural temperament, your upbringing, your life circumstances. Yep. Some people, and I would point, we've talked about this, I think, on, on different podcasts, but I am naturally, I have a natural sort of um, tendency towards happiness. Um, I'm a pretty upbeat guy. It takes quite a bit for me to kind of get down. I don't tend towards being more somber, more um, dull. I don't know if you want to say that. Um, but a lot of that has to, because pe- people have noted, like, man, you're just in a good mood all the time. And I'm in a good mood a lot of the time, not all the time, but I'm in a good mood a lot of the time. And I chalk a lot of that up um, to just my natural temperament. That yes, the Lord has and, given me. and that's, yes. And knowing that we're going to go there, uh, that's a really, um, I think, a helpful part of this conversation yes. to have. Yes. That, um, that one thing God is not doing is saying, let me homogenize you people to where you all have the same temperament. In fact, the opposite. Right. I, I am convinced that uh, some of our more uh, 
dour pastor friends, that serious temperament mm-hmm. will last. I, I, I don't yeah. think everybody needs to be a jokester right. uh, or some sort of like, I, I don't think uh, I mean, lightness right. is the only temperament that God makes. Right. And, and I do think that um, for whatever reason, some people have that idea. Yeah. And what that also means then is that um, certain, and I'll even call, say, certain sinful tendencies in our demeanor and our behavior towards others, that someone who maybe is more, is not as upbeat a personality naturally are going to be more prone to than I am. I'm going to be far less prone to, um, to being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I struggle because... I know my heart, and I know that I'm still prone to a lot of these things. Um, but even just how we treat others and treating others um, kindly, joyfully, those kinds of things um, is is going to be harder for someone that doesn't naturally have a personality like me or maybe had an upbringing different from me that was more difficult, that was harder, that, yeah. that just caused them to be naturally more defensive or more whatever the case might be. Um, and so it isn't right to judge two people based solely on those demeanors because you don't know where this one person's coming from. Yeah. Without Christ, someone who even still as a Christian deals a lot with being bitter or angry or whatever, they might be a lot better than they used to be before Christ. So comparing them from who they are now to who another person is now in Christ is not a good comparison of whether or not they've truly been changed. Yeah. It's comparing them to who who they are now compared to who they would be without Christ. Well, and, and here's a, here's a whole other way to flip this and think about it. Um, you could write down, and anybody who's hearing this could write down, uh, if you could name three characteristics that sort of American culture values in people, what are they? And, and just think about that. Everybody who's hearing this right now, think about that. If you could name three characteristics that we as Mer- Americans in particular, not just Westerners, there are things that Westerners in general value, but Americans in particular— some of the characteristics that you naturally have are just some of the things that people put at the top. Yeah. Extroversion, sociability, keeping things light, being fun. Here's the thing. I know enough about, uh, about various cultures that exist now and cultures that have existed in the past. If you lived in ancient Greece, they would assess things in terms of precision and how sharp your logic is. And a whole different set of things. And I think that's a part of where this conversation goes, too, is that, look, you, every single one of us, whatever natural gifts you have, you also grow up in a culture. And unfortunately, if you grow up in a culture, you've been treated like you are valued in a certain way because of your culture. Mm-hmm. God is not like that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, God's expectations of you are not your culture's expectations of you. And that's good news for everyone, but I think uh, one thing that's great about this chapter is C.S. Lewis does a really good job of walking you through. Here's the thing, though. Whatever you've been given, you better make the most of it because there are plenty of people who have been given much, and much will be required of them. God will have them answer for that. But there are plenty of people who are given a whole different set of gifts and maybe they weren't valued for that, but God will also expect you to make good use of those gifts, whether you get accolades for it or not, and whether it makes you fun at parties or not. And I think that's just a way to flip it upside down, um, because as a person who uh, 
who has known you, all the descriptions you've made of yourself are true. Like you're not, I mean, this is the way you are. Um, and that's just another way to approach it. These are mm-hmm. things that often uh, we aspire to, mm-hmm. um, but that's just one culture. Right. And, and I got to say this, because I don't want it to seem this is where I was going next. Like what that means for me then is that there are a lot of sins that someone who yep. has different personality than me or different upbringing, different temperament, I am going to have a much harder time fighting against those sins than they are. Uh, and I can just name a few. I can tell you right now, if, if people knew my heart, they knew my desire to please and be, uh, be accepted by others and, yeah. and gain the approval of others. Uh, someone might look at me compared to someone who has a different temperament than me and think, yeah, I don't, I don't even really know if Denton um, seems to be in an in, in infancy stage in those areas yep. uh, because that's something that, man, I just still struggle with yep. a lot as an extroverted person, as someone who uh, just has the temperament I have. I really, really struggle not putting my identity in how others view me yeah. and having their approval. And so I, I say that to say different temperaments look different and, and bring different things that we value to the surface. But it just means that I'm dealing with different sins than other people are, at least in different ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. 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 Definitely. And, and, and this is so deep. Like I, I wanted, we've talked about this. I maybe in not the last, uh, discussion of mere Christianity, but two back about, uh, stoicism and, uh, Epicureanism. Like we are very far on the Epicurean side, which means pleasure seeking, yeah. pain avoidance, yeah. and 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 so little. Uh, the negative side of life, we basically haven't decided what we're going to do about it, other than we're scared of it, and we hope nothing negative ever happens. And that's yeah. so foolish. <laughs> yeah. Like our culture is just very far on in in like if you think about one of these um, squares that you see in terms of uh, how to compare things uh we are so far on and and out of balance Mm -hmm. on the epicurean side hoping for pleasure unending and not only that putting weight on it that it'll never hold like i hope my endless pleasure seeking will make me fulfilled it's like well it won't but you and everybody that is around you is noticing that but you're in this mass delusion state where everybody's going but you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna seek some more pleasure tomorrow and hope that it turns out better and it's like well Keep on your experiment, pal. Yeah. Meanwhile, this is not even the only brand of sort of basic philosophy uh, around kind of happiness that has existed in the world. And Stoicism says, look, you need to know some hard things are going to happen that you're not in control of. Uh, but we don't. We hate those ideas. <laughs> don't tell me I'm not in control of something. I hate that. And, and so we're so far on this side of the spectrum that that literally a lot of the other cu- cultures in the Western world don't know what to do about us because we're so addicted to sensationalism. I mean, friends of mine have told me uh, about being in, say, Britain, for instance, and they, they did the American thing where it's like, oh, when somebody says something funny and you can tell, like, oh, I can think of something funny to say next, and we're about to have a whole lot of fun. Well, then they get really loud in a restaurant in Britain, and immediately these other people around say, hey, you got to calm down. Like, it is so rude to immediately get loud and everybody, what are you trying to draw attention to yourself and like take over this whole restaurant right now? And my friend said, it was one of the weirdest moments of my life because everybody in America is like, well, you've been waiting for that all day for a moment to get really loud and exuberant and laugh. And, and who cares if everybody else in the restaurant, they, they'll be envious of you because you're the one having fun. I mean, like how we do things yeah. is not the way other, other people do things, but 
frankly, one of the weird things about being American is we've lived with this weird idea of like, well, they probably should want to do things like us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not the best habit. <laughs> I don't think it is. Um, and that comes from someone who very much is like that guy. I tend to get pretty loud when I get excited or have something funny to say, uh, things like that. But yeah. And so the, the conversation around, um, what is conversion, what it means to be a Christian, that it's not based on just looking at someone and determining how nice they are. But he does go on to say that it is true that as Christians mature, as they grow, as they, he doesn't use the word, but I would say uh, are sanctified uh, progressively, the more they are, they are sanctified, um, the more you do begin to, and, and with certain people you can just instantly recognize a lot of times, yeah, that that's what a Christian looks like. Right. You know? Right. Um, I have a really funny story that's coming to my mind. Um, so, uh, I was first, uh, discipled by two people, uh, Ron Reed, who, uh, is just a recently retired, uh, mailman and part-time pastor in my hometown. And I was also discipled by Ken Lovelace, who was my first youth minister. Now, Ken Lovelace was discipled by a guy named Mark McKay and Mark McKay has since gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, Mark would come and do uh, Disciple Now weekends and come and visit and teach when he was there. So I got to know him over the first uh, few years that I was a Christian. Very, very sensitive, tender-hearted kind of guy. One of these sort of very kind of uh, contemplative, gentle spirit about him. Um, but one of the funniest stories Mark ever told us, he said, uh, one, he was a youth minister for probably something like 40 years. Um, and he said one of the things that happened when he was doing a camp one time is the kids, uh, they took shoe polish to his windows of his car and all this. But what they did was they wrote like, hey, here's a Jesus freak, and then pointed to the drivers. They left a, an open spot for him to drive, you know, like... Christian here. This guy loves Jesus. And he said it was one of the strangest experiences to drive around town because it's like, well, one, yes, my car looks ridiculous, but two, I am so identified here as a Christian. I better think like, what do people expect of me now that it's so clear on the road that I'm a Christian. And that's a really funny thing to think about our lives and how we live. And like you're saying, what's expected of us as a Christian and are the expectations always right? Well, Clearly not, but what what is right to expect? Uh, what is proper to expect? Um, and, and I was thinking about that because every one of us, like bold face, we should start out by saying every one of us has failed our Lord first and as a result let down others who needed more from us than what we gave them. And, and, and not just in regard to being nice in terms to in terms of we should have helped them because love is action in terms of uh, being gracious in our conversation. Things that, I mean, if you think about, especially I'm hearing in my head, uh, the Apostle Paul is constantly calling us, hey, be gracious in your dealings with outsiders. Be gracious in your dealings. Mm-hmm. You know, your love for each other should be evident. Yeah. This is a constant uh, expectation in the scriptures um, but one of the things that, that has come up a lot in the course of talking about mere Christianity is that our, our fundamental error about love is thinking that it means, hey, make sure you have positive feelings towards that person, when really what the biblical expectation is is make sure you behave in a sacrificial manner towards someone. Yeah. That is what love is, and the Scripture has. This will be very unpopular, but the Scripture says not only does judgment start first with the church, but you should love the church in such a way. Mm-hmm. 
you should take care of each other in such a way that outsiders look and go, my goodness, those Christians care for each other. And then, yes, you should love your enemy and love your neighbor, even if they're not a believer. But there is in, in the New Testament an emphasis that, look, if you do not love the church, you don't know the Lord. Right. If you cannot manage to love your brother, you, you can be sure. Uh, you, you have not known this Lord who gave his life for his church. Yep. That's exactly right. Everything you said there is exactly true, and uh, unpopular as it might be, it is the case that uh, I mean, Jesus himself says uh, they will know you by this, how you love one another. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, really, really good point. And so, yeah, there's so much, you know, even as we're getting into this conversation, I'm like, man, there's so much that we could talk about, but... Um, yeah, we've but, hedged enough, I guess. I, I mean, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the gist, if I were to try and boil it down to what he's saying in this conversation about nice people or new men, uh, is that before God, so what, as, to be a Christian means you are justified before God. This is not going to be an exhaustive definition, but that we're justified before God. And we are not justified before God because of how well we perform, how nice we are, uh, whatever good works you can think of to, enter, to fill here. Uh, that's not how we are justified before God. We're yeah. justified before God yeah. by our faith in him, uh, which he grants us as a gift. Um, now, when it comes to how other people view us and for Christians, what do we then do with like the moral law, for example? Yeah. Uh, if we're not justified before God by it, then what role does it play in our lives? Well, it does still have a role to play. In fact, we are called and given the ability to obey the law. Uh, and, and that means all the moral teaching that's found uh, uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament reiterated by Christ uh, to say that we are to um, love your neighbor as yourself, that you are not to lust, that you are not to uh, to hate your brother, um, that you're not to do all these things. Just I'm, Obviously, if you can't tell, I'm sort of naming things that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. We are called to do. Those are essential. Those are moral law that God is laying down for us. And as Christians, we are called to and bound to obey those things. So our justification justification before God is not based on our obedience to those things. Yet we as Christians are still bound to obey those things. And indeed, he even tells us that the world has the right to look and see and judge whether or not we are doing those things. Jesus himself says, you will know a tree by its fruit. Yep. Um, and so the answer is, yes, The to be a new creation means something different than just being a nice man. Uh, but if you are a new creation, then you ought to... Uh, to um, aspire to be a good man, a nice man or or woman or whatever the case might be. You ought to seek to be obedient to the commands that God has laid out for us. Right. I would say like nice and more. Nice and more. Right. That's good. Uh, just because uh, it is, it's not less than nice. Right. But nice is not enough. Right. Uh, I use nice because it's a word he uses a lot yes. in the chapter. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's more than just being nice whatever definition you come up with for, for right. what nice is. Right, and I think, you know, goodness, we're sort of specialists in nice. You're you're polite to some degree, but you're not rude. Uh, you Southern hospitality. To some, right. Yeah, that, that would be, you know, uh, it, it, it's. I can say that um, after having recently gone to a Nate Pargazzi uh, comedy show that happened here in Evansville just a couple weeks ago, we do sort of love Southern culture, um, even with all its sort of weird paradoxes, you know, things like sayings like bless your heart. I think everybody, even when you're told like, you know, often Southerners say bless your heart because they don't really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, but at the same time, what can you say other than, well, 
Bless your pee-picking heart, you know. Let's hope it turns out better for you. Uh, and and that yeah. kind of has a charm about it. Yeah. It's the most charming insult I think you can give a person. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I heard one comedian was talking about, you can say anything you want in the South as long as you say, bless your heart. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So do you want to hear some of the things I didn't like about this chapter? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've got some initial things out of the way. I, I, I do. There's some principles as far as uh, that we're going to need to get into. I think he has a lot of good things to say, but I think we've already covered some of those. So let's let's hear some of those. Let's hear, okay, here it is. So um, he's talking about, um, and I think even he, he being C.S. Lewis, maybe he's not doing it, but the way I'm reading it, he is even sort of blending together a little bit. Um, conversion and sanctification mm -hmm. he says in uh in this chapter it's i don't know about three or four paragraphs in uh he says there are people a great many of them who are slowly ceasing to be christians but who still call themselves by that name so he's talking here he even says some of them are clergy he's talking here about the problems with trying to determine you know who is and who's who is not a christian you yeah know? Uh, as the world sometimes like to they like to try and categorize determine but their categories are oftentimes flawed. And one of the reasons why, uh, according to C.S. Lewis, is that um, he says the world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. He says there's, as I just read, there are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them are clergy. He says there are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not call themselves so. I think this is an interesting thing. And he's clearly trying to make a specific point but I think he's using language here that I find to be confusing, especially since largely this chapter and the next, he seems to be trying to talk about new birth, yeah. right? Or regeneration or conversion. Yeah. Um, I think I think we use those terms interchangeably pretty safely. Um, but now he talks about it as though you can gradually become reborn uh, or gradually become un- Reborn, mm -hmm. as though your generate your regeneration uh, can be slowly coming or slowly going. Now, I think that is true of sanctification, that a person is becoming a Christian. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm speaking in terms of when he says uh, some people are slowly becoming Christians, uh, even if they maybe don't call themselves Christian now, Christians now. I would say not really. Either you are or you aren't a Christian. I don't think anyone is slowly becoming one and is in a state of a limbo between not being and being one. Uh, I think the same. I think even more so, he's wrong when he says a person can be slowly. Uh, what what do you say? Uh, ceasing to be Christians. Now, the term Christian here, I am understanding him to mean people who are actually followers of Christ having been saved. Um, I disagree with that statement. I don't think a person can be slowly ceasing to be a Christian if they were one, right? Uh, this is sometimes, we, we talked about this earlier, the different phrases that we sometimes use in, uh, in some of our circles of once saved, always saved, or these various things. Um, well, one, one thing I will say to people when they say, well, if you know, once saved, then you're always saved. I think what some people have pointed out as a helpful correction to that is if saved, always saved, yeah. gives a helpful clarification. But I do think that it's true that those who belong to Christ, and I would say a Christian is one who belongs to Christ, 
who has become and been adopted as a son or daughter of, of, of God, uh, that that is never revoked. It has never ceased. You never become a daughter or son of, of God, and then your adoption is in any way removed or revoked. Yeah. Um, I've done this before, though, where I sometimes will project a theological implication onto something C.S. Lewis is saying uh, that he's maybe not intending to say, and maybe I'm doing that here, but at the very least, I think this is language I don't like. <laughs> sure, I, I, and I would understand. I mean, um, one thing that I can say, having known you long enough, uh, what you, what I am hearing you do is you're basically saying, I interpret uh, the parable of four soils as a lower passage and the book of Romans as a higher passage. Uh, I am interpreting anything like the parables of the four soils underneath the grid of the concepts given in something like, I like Romans, that better underneath which the grid is, of, okay, which is justification, sanctification, progressive right. sanctification. You, if you had it, you didn't lose it. And even, even the way it, I would harmonize those two, yes. those two would, would probably be to give priority or, you know, yeah, to Romans over that other passage to help me interpret the story of the soils through, but even still, uh, uh, I, I think my understanding of the soils is exactly what Jesus explains it as that there's only one category who are true believers who are truly redeemed. Yes, I agree. One of four, right? Um, I don't think any of the rest were, uh, becoming Christians and then weren't or, were Christians and then became not Christians. Well, but again, right now you are speaking of it in terms of Romans, and I mean even the the phrase that you used, uh, they were saved. Sometimes the New Testament says are being saved, and sometimes it says yeah. those who will inherit salvation, mm-hmm. uh, because it is uh, no matter how you slice it, there is this challenging diagnosis, which is we live in this weird time between the times when. Jesus has come, his message is here, and his church is here, and his church proclaims the gospel, and then people hear and are in various degrees of responding to it. Um, And the clarity that I find in the Apostle Paul is that those who persevere will inherit salvation. Salvation, strictly speaking, in my mind, the way I think of it is, salvation means one of two things is going to happen to you. Every person who hears this, one of two things is going to happen to you. Either, A, the clearer thing in the New Testament, but frankly the less likely thing based upon what we know of human history, A, Jesus will return and this age will end. Mm-hmm. But B, you will die. Mm-hmm. Either of those means a lot of uh, distress for you. If Jesus returns and the whole world turns upside down, uh, that will be distressing, but your death will be distressing as well. Salvation is the word that the Bible uses to go, you need a way through either of those very, very distressing realities, the return of Christ, which means the entire earth will be tested with fire, what here will last into the next age, Mm -hmm. and what will not. But at your death, you will need a way through that either. The wages of sin are death. The the sin of uh, of our ancient parents comes down to us, and sin will bear itself out in you in death. And there's no good way around that. You and I had lunch just now. We're having conversations about how death actually looks when it comes, yeah. and it's horrible. Yeah. Uh, death is the last enemy to be defeated. No, no one who is hearing this on a on completely unrelated note, anybody tells you, quote, death is just a part of life, unquote, that is not Christian. 
No, nowhere did you get that in Christianity. In fact, the way the New Testament speaks is the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I look forward to the destruction of that enemy. Yeah, it's a product of the curse. Yeah. Uh, yes. And um, and so there's a, there's a whole deep reality there that we are not speaking of right now. But then salvation is the way through one of those two things happening. And and and, and I am I, I look at this and I still frankly don't know how to reconcile exactly uh, the teaching of Romans to the parable of four souls because I don't think it's quite as simple as well you have four categories and three of them are not Christians from a standpoint of, I mean, what specifically, especially the third one about uh, those who, uh, who commit to Christ or uh, the exact phrase is uh, there are those who uh, for a time uh, desire to follow him and the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke them out mm-hmm. and they fall away mm-hmm. uh, well there's there's a time frame that is in there and I, I i think the most faithful way to speak about that is that there's a lot of tension in the scripture about exactly what is happening in the time frame but frankly given that the way this whole parable starts is for some like seed on a hard path the word lays upon their hard heart and the devil comes and plucks that word away because it, it found no place in their heart. Uh, there is spiritual warfare mixed in with all of this. Sure. And how that all shakes out, I don't know, especially when you want to get real theoretical about it. But what we can't, we can know the practical for sure that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I, I, anything, any part of you, your conscience, praise God, is alive that when you hear words that are truth, your, your, whatever degree your heart has deadness in it, the living parts of your heart go, hey, pay attention to that life-giving truth that you're hearing there. Do not just dismiss that. And I can remember back to being 16 and just hearing truth of God and my own broken, beaten, twisted heart. When I heard truth, there was something about it that I went, I should not just dismiss that out of hand. Uh, and, and my heart had life to it. And anybody hearing this, I hope that you hope that there is still that recognition for you. Cause the Bible also says you can, you can harden your heart. You can deaden your heart and you should not do that. Don't turn away from the truth. It is, uh, it is evil. It is death giving and, and, and it is something that you should not do in any way, shape or form. And so there's a lot here mm-hmm. and, and, I say all this to say I think there's a lot you could do with this, a lot of scripture searching and reflection you could do in this, um, and that for sure what's happening is he's putting a whole lot of weight purely on something like the parable of the four soils mm-hmm. uh, in that perspective. And, and, and the last thing I'll say in terms of how to diagnose exactly what's happening here is that I have been around enough Christians and enough people who've read the Bible a lot is that one of the hard things is that some uh, groups tend to focus a lot more on, say, the letters of Paul over the Gospels, and some groups tend to focus a lot more on the Gospels and so a whole lot less on the letters uh, and beyond of Paul. And that's not the answer. The answer is we're all after integration. It's just challenging to do it. No, oh, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's—I think e- even there is— 
or as long as church history has been around, I suppose there has been a difficulty, even in something as, uh, as straightforward as understanding Roman, the book of Romans and the book of James together. Yep. yep. Uh, many people find yep. it to be very, very difficult. Yep. I think there are plenty of people who have put forward good and helpful answers and some on different sides, some from different angles, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think where, what is lost in this with what he's put and even if he's not intending to put this forward, he does say you can be slowly becoming a Christian or slowly ceasing to be a Christian as though you yeah. were a Christian, but, but you cease to be, um, I think it does raise a lot of questions and, and concerns with things like, um, like, can you have any assurance in your salvation? And if so, what's the basis of that assurance? Yeah. Um, if the basis is on anything that you have to do or provide, I don't think we can have much assurance, much assurance. Um, but if the basis is on Christ and what he has already done and what he has yeah. already provided, then I don't know that we can say that a person can lose that if, the basis of our salvation is Christ yeah. and our, our righteousness. So I understand that it's, I don't want to take a th- theological discussion and just say, Oh, it's just easy. And C.S. Lewis just got it wrong. Uh, but as I read that, those are some of the things that come to my mind where I think yeah. where, where does, where does assurance play in this whole discussion? Um, ha- you know, it raises the question for me that I would have for C.S. Lewis is, and I, he probably did in an earlier chapter. I just can't remember now, but like, how would you define a Christian? What is a Christian as you are now using it here in this chapter mm-hmm. on uh, a new men versus nice people? Um, because if you're using Christian to mean someone who has been uh, redeemed by Christ, then he seems to have just said that though Christ had redeemed you, you now are have been unredeemed. Well, and I, I just, um, I'll throw another one at you that uh, I think these are complementary, but think about how often in our tradition, we, uh, if you were to say, okay, how could I know that I uh, can be right with God and that I will be with God when I die? Um, we would quote Romans, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart uh, that God, as you confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whereas if you ask Jesus for assurance, the number one verse that comes to my mind is, my sheep know my voice. And those are two different answers to the question, mm-hmm. I think complementary for sure, mm-hmm. um, but still two different answers to the question. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I, I look at it, and I, I guess my, my real tendency is to go, there is plenty of useful things to talk about here. And oh, everything yeah. that we have said here, I think it's very, very useful and a good conversation for yeah, every single so. person to have because I now have lived in our um, sort of scheme enough as a, as a tradition in the Southern Baptist mm-hmm. tradition to know that the weaknesses of our tradition are pretty evident in this regard, which is that I'll tell myself, well, at one point I confessed with my mouth that Jesus was Lord, so there, therefore I don't have anything to worry about. And it's like, what? What? When's the last time that you know you uh, you showed any interest in the things of God? Uh, any fruit came from your life? I don't want to deal with those questions. 
I, I, I would rather not hear any of those questions. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I, whatever I can, I kind of believe. Yeah, I, I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, and I, I, and that's pretty much as far as I intend to go with the whole thing. Uh, and that is not the intention of the Book of Romans, right? Uh, <laughs> where that verse was plucked out of. Right. Uh, it, the there Book of Romans other... is a letter meant mm. to be read at sixteen chapters. Read it in a sitting, and you will gather what that is about. Uh, not plucking one verse out and going, ooh, I like this a lot. Right. So. Right. I, well, I 100% agree with you. Yeah, and I, I think um, I think there are there are Southern Baptist circles, and, and I think it's been a, a, maybe a plague on the Southern Baptist tradition, as you, as you have kind of laid it out and talked about it already for a time, where we have, for all intents and purposes, purposes though unintentionally, um, we have become a new form of antinomianism yeah. simply because of a of a forsaking of the law, yeah. not because of a claiming that the law no longer has anything to say, but unintentionally forsaking it. If that makes right. sense, right. I think I think it, it's good to talk go back and talk more about um, I think what Calvin called the the threefold use of the law, um, and talk more about those kinds of things. That what what is the purpose of the law now for Christians? What why do we seek to obey the commands of Scripture today if yeah. we fully admit, as I already have, that we are not found righteous before God? We are not righteous before God because of our works, because of our obedience to the law. Yet, the law still has a role to play, even in the life right. of a Christian. Um, and so, anyway, that, that's a whole other discussion yeah, for that's, a whole other day. And, and, but this is good because I think this is going to continue. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from this entire book is the next quote, which is, with every choice, you are becoming more of a heaven-like or more of a hell-like creature. Yep. I think that that is, um, as a person, now, uh, I can say from the start, for me personally, as an overthinker, <laughs> this was, like, awful. <laughs> because it confirmed my greatest fears. Uh, that uh, I've, I've had a sense of this, that choices are important, I want to make good choices. Um, and, and, and look, lest anybody think that this is some sort of holy kind of thing. No, even growing up, I'm a very cautious person by nature and it's not, I want to make smart choices. It's not just, I want to write choices in terms of, uh, even this plays into, you know, we're all confessing sins here, like plays into my own pride of like, I want to be viewed as intelligent and competent and all of these things. Therefore I need to look like I'm making all the right choices, the smart choices that I have it together. Um, but this does turn it in a way that I would call Christian truth, that with every choice you're becoming more of a heaven-like or more of a hell-like creature. And, and, and that this folds into one of the biggest points of this whole chapter, which is, look, uh, you are here before God, and the choices that you make matter. So make them well. They will have ramifications. Uh, you have, you have a sense. I mean, what's one of the strange things about being alive is that you have a sense that I'm making choices and they affect the future. They affect what happens to me, uh, to others down the line. Yeah, I mean, um, and C.S. Lewis and other works will deal with this at greater length. You know, the weight of glory that, that we 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 are able uh, we are able to love our neighbor. We have a life giving message such that. Uh, I mean, he says things in there that if, if you could see what your neighbor will become if they say yes to Christ and become what he meant for them to be, he said, there's a reason why God doesn't show you that. You'd be likely to bow down and worship them because we are, we are destined to be uh, impressive creatures. Mm-hmm. 
But he said, if you were to see what kind of horrible terror, what kind of fallen, just ghostly lost creature that they would become, it is worse than the worst uh, horror movie you've seen. And that's your neighbor. The weight of your neighbor's glory sits squarely on your shoulders, he says. And, and to bring it back to this, and, but this for you, for, for each of us, we, we have to know that with every choice, you are becoming mm -hmm. more of a heaven-like or more of a hell-like creature that, um, that what God wants for you is life. And he will stop at nothing. But the, one of the ways he's working that is, why would, will you choose life every day? Yeah. Or, or will, you, will you continue in your addiction to death and yeah. sin and destruction? Um, because his, his goal for you, he will fight tooth and nail. He will fight with everything to give life to you. Yeah. Um, but what, what will you do? Yeah, I, I think a way I would say this as as um, you know, based on a lot of what I've already said and kind of showing my hand quite a bit, I think another way of saying what he's saying here, where he says you're becoming more of a heaven-like or more of a hell-like creature with every choice, it's another way of saying, don't let your understanding or the, your uh, doctrine of justification lead you to conclude that what you do in this life doesn't matter. Yeah, that the choice you make. Yeah, yeah, matter. sure. That is a false conclusion, yeah. you know. And I think, unfortunately, some people have come to that. Um, but that's a that's a bad conclusion and one that I am right there with you saying we need to push against that. Yeah. Um, so here's what's funny, and I'll let the audience in on this. You said the next quote there, talking about on our page. I was looking for that quote only to realize it's the <laughs> second line on a full page of lines. I was like, holy moly. Well, we're not going to get to all this, but uh, um, do you want to do you want to hear? Well, go ahead. We want to hear what? The only the other thing in this chapter that I didn't like. Oh sure, of course. Okay, I'll just get no, all I've kinds been, of spice. Basically, here's where I am right now. This is the last one. Yeah. I don't care if this thing is two hours long. Okay, it, it probably won't be. I are to our listening audience, but. <laughs> but but if it is, stick with us. Um, he he says this is shortly after this. This is still when he's talking about like the difficulties and and why you can't really trust the world to categorize Christian versus non Christian and things yeah. like that. Uh, but he says some things in there. I'm just like, I just don't know, man. Um, he says, there are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background, though he might still say he believed, the Buddhist teaching on certain other points. And then he says, many of the good pagans long before Christ's birth may have been in this position. I don't agree with that. <laughs> there. Uh, what, what do you think? What do you well, think? no, I don't. Uh, here's my hope for that, 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 that the, what he has in mind is some sort of uh, beginning that, that in the work that God is doing, that the Holy Spirit convicting the whole world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, that has a plan then to lead them out of those teachings of Buddha from from what is a uh, a mixed uh, someone who says certain things that are of some value into what is the truth. Um, but now I'm not I'm not on board with that. Yeah. Okay. okay. We don't have to talk anymore about that. Yeah, so. that is. Um, I, just, I just and here's the thing, man. Like, I would be lying if I said I read every page of this book and completely tracked with every bit of it. C.S. Lewis is a very intelligent guy. And if he were here, he might say, here's where you're misunderstanding my point. Yeah. And I would love to hear that. But for my for my sake, I found that part to be um, 
confusing at best. Yeah, and I um, there is a a deep well uh, of discussion there about uh, what is called myth become fact, um, and this is an an essay uh, that that he wrote. Uh, Tolkien wrote a lot about myth become fact and what they think God is doing through mm-hmm. pagan religions. Um, and that's a whole big long discussion, right. but I I don't like that that much because I think it's really unclear. I, I right. think that uh, right. I think that most, I mean, if this is a book that is introduction to Christianity, it is way too ambitious to think. Oh, here at the end, let me say a few things about Buddhism, and it's like, eh, that's, let's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the crossover between Christianity and Buddhism. Is going, that's yeah. the, we're not, you know. Uh, it was funny because then later he basically throws out all Mohammedists <laughs> as like yes. a threat to Christianity in general. <laughs> well, I think they have some teachings on mercy and the kind of things you touched on from Buddhism, but I don't know. I am neither a Buddhist nor a Mohammedist, so. Yeah, we what what uh, what else about this chapter did you find to be fruitful? Enjoy um, questions you would have. I, he places a great emphasis. He says he says you can't overstate the importance of surrendering your will to God, of trusting Him completely, fully, uh, uh, in every area of your life, uh, of letting go of your disposition, which is to maintain control. Um, what the Bible. Uh, points to as the sin of grasping you know jesus lived his life he did not he he said uh the book of philippians he he did not count equality with god as something to be grasped but let it go and lived his life in an open-handed way and i man if there's something that we could talk at length about it is that at every point in your life there is uh there is a, almost an instinct but it is a part of your flesh and your sinful nature that goes why don't you go ahead and try to grab a little more control now? I know when you were single, you managed to say, God, I'll, I'll bring somebody along that I could, you know, love and marry. But and that worked out. But let's, now that you've had kids, it's scary. So let's, let's take a little more control and, and let's, let's get some of that grasping back. And I'm telling you, one of the strange things about as life goes on, that is a sin that, um, that is, is scarier. It's harder to live life as time goes on and less is in your control. The things that you love in particular. Uh, children are on my mind right now, but I'm noticing as the older you get, the more you, uh, it's very scary to have health decline and to lose people that you love uh, to death. And uh, there's a lot of things that get less and less in your control. And there's a path to bitterness that's very dangerous there. Um, and so this emphasis that he makes is extremely important. Right. With all that you have, give God all control of your life. Repent right. of all this self-will, any that you can, any that you find, and ask for more strength to do it again tomorrow because it is, it is one of the best things, if not the best thing that you can do from a sanctification standpoint. And one of the things that's the most confusing when you start out because we think, well, I've given God a pretty good, uh, pretty good person and, and he's lucky that I'm following him. And we start out in this dumb, dumb frame of mind. Uh, yeah. you know, you got a good one in me. Yeah. I know he's all these other jokers, so, you know, I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to be one of the yeah. people around here. who really helps a lot. I'm a certified uh, fork truck driver. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he pushes and leads us on. And, uh, what we need is to, uh, receive the exit from that self will. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and by his grace, we will have that. Yeah. Um, but there, there is, uh, to anybody who, who, uh, who hears this and it makes sense to you, praise God that it does, because only by his work do we 
um, have any road out of our self-will. We are addicted to our self-will. We are addicted to our own pride, our own ideas. We like our own ideas and our own perspective, and we like for all of the good stuff to flow to me. Yeah. And we have such jealousy and envy and rage. When why is, why are they getting it? Why why are they getting the attention? Why are they getting? And anything that you can do to say, God, break me of that, break me, whatever it takes. And mm-hmm. I, I've, as I've told students many times, it's a dangerous prayer to pray, to say, God, break me of this or that or this. But if you can do it, do it, because it's the best thing you'll ever do. It's scary. It's hard. Uh, but that's a prayer that God will act on. Yep. Really. So I don't, I don't, have, I don't think too much else. Let me, let um, me s- there's a lot in here about raw material that we should mention. I don't know if that's what you want to mention now. Uh, it's not. Where is it? Read it. Um, uh, so uh, having walked through this before, I, I want to say it this way. Um, each, uh, each, but each person who hears me think about, uh, what do you think are the good things, the good abilities or personality traits that people get from God? And then uh, I want you to think about, uh, he describes this. He says, there are people who, who are rich. And, and one of the things about American culture is we kind of worship talent. We love it when people have talent. We love to watch them play basketball or act or sing. We love talent. We're, we're mm-hmm. kind of obsessed with it. Um, and he goes even deeper. He, he says, uh, yeah, we, you know, look, there's a lot of good personality traits. Um, but God knows what he gives. But you should ask yourself, uh, a very specific question about this because C.S. Lewis, he says that there are people who are rich in this way, that they have a lot of raw material, that they have a lot of sort of personality traits that are valued. And we kind of been talking about this from the start today. Um, But he says, do you see how people who are rich in this way will have a hard time coming towards God because they've been told, well, you're great in and of yourself. What do you need God for? Um, But he also, he, he describes the group of people to whom virtue comes easily. And he says it's easy for these people to love and be friendly and to relate and be joyous and all this. But he says there's a second group of people who virtue comes with more difficulty. He says they are little and low and timid and warped and thin-blooded, lonely, uh, or they're the passionate, sensual, unbalanced people. And he says, uh, I I, I think the takeaway from this is that there's good news and bad news for whichever group you think you are in. (laughs) Uh, So if you believe yourself to be in the good group, well, then the good news is this. Uh, you got a great life, and you have skills and abilities, and good for you. Um, So having joy is good. Go ahead and do it. Live your life with joy. But he says, remember that uh, when much is given, much is required, which are the words straight from Jesus, where much is given, much is required. Uh, God has given much, and he expects you to make the best of it. Um, But to the second group, uh, the bad news is you're always going to be faced with the very real fact that you need Christ. You're going to be unbalanced. You're going to hurt people. They're going to tell you that that hurt them just like it did before. They're going to ask you why you can't change. Why can't you do it better than you do it? Why can't you be like other people who have problems and then solve them and, and improve and have a, a much more um, kind of consistent line in their life? But he says this. Um, you live risky lives. And... You know who you are uh, if this resonates with you, but God sees you too. He knows what he's given you and what he hasn't given you. And God is not grading on the curve like everyone else is, where to the people who, are, uh, who look good and talk well and, oh, well, we're more impressed with them. And, and this reminds me of uh, stories that I don't even think we've ever mentioned about how, look, it's really true that people who are better looking get off for crimes more often. It's absolutely. I mean, there's studies about it. It's just pretty much 
accepted and proven fact that if people like the way you looked, you look, even before you even speak, uh, then they're more likely to literally acquit you of a crime. That's no good. That is another aspect of our broken world. But if you're one of those lost sheep that the shepherd came specifically in search of, uh, then if Christ came today, he would be hanging around with you because he went to those who he knew needed him. He came for the broken. He came for the lost sheep. And uh, so take heart. Wherever you find yourself, there is both good news and bad news. And, and I think that's such a powerful thing uh, about this chapter because, man, do we hardly ever talk about kind of raw material. And even then, your base character, which is very separate from whatever raw material that you have. Um, make the most of what you have, but what God is really paying attention to is the inner you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that inner you will continue to last. That, that inner you, the decisions that you make, do matter with every decision. You become more of a heaven-like or more of a hell-like creature. So I think that's a huge point. One of the last quotes in this chapter, I think it helps uh, bring us back a little bit to uh, the difference between nice people or new men. He says in, in one of the last paragraphs here, he says, for mere improvement is no redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to agree to a degree we cannot yet imagine, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, yeah. but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. This is what new birth means, and yeah. the difference between being made better and being redeemed. Mm-hmm. Um, that mere improvement is not the same thing as redemption. Mm-hmm. God has something far greater in mind than to just make better men of the same kind as what we already are, yeah. but to turn us into something new, something better, something far more glorious uh, than that. And man, that's what he does in redemption. Yep. You know, that's yeah. And, and, you know, uh, eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor has any mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But, but it is, it is being revealed. God has revealed it to us by his spirit, that there's something inside of your, your spirit that, that is uh, resonating with the Holy Spirit who says to you, take heart, don't give up. What is coming is in degrees of magnitude better than any evil that exists, though there are horrible evils that exist. What is coming? Uh, I mean, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to what will be revealed to those of us who love him. Uh, and, 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 and this is a man who suffers that says this. The Apostle Paul suffered, but the one who had been, I mean, this was revealed, this scripture was revealed to him to give to the rest of us, not because he hadn't suffered, but because he said, I, I speak as a man who has suffered. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Take heart. I mean, that is something you want to talk about. <laughs> you can take heart yeah. in that. Yeah, I mean, uh, along same lines, written by the same guy, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, 16 uh, through 18, he says, so we do not lose heart. Yeah. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Mm-hmm. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is this is what gives us hope. Yeah. Hope of redemption, hope of things to come. And um, man, that verse alone I could sit here and kind of like go on and on about, but I think I think that 
would be a long podcast. So yeah. I will I will settle it reading it and uh, encourage you to go and do the same. But um, you know, it's a very similar encouragement to what Peter gives in First Peter one thirteen to a church that is in suffering. He says, "Hey, you know how you're going to make it through this suffering is by setting your mind firmly on the grace." Yep. of Jesus Christ that's been granted to you and that will be ultimately found and fulfilled in the age to come. Yep. Like when we will be completely and utterly renewed, glorified, yep. we'll be given our resurrection bodies, we will be like Christ and we will see him as he is. Yep. Um well, that's a hopeful hopeful thing. It is. And and so then we also end with a hopeful thing, which is the final chapter and uh I don't have anywhere near as much to say about this chapter, nor did he really. No. Um, but I have a quote that really I, I think is uh, really uh, helpful to summarize this chapter. He says, uh, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Amen. Man, that, so that is the last—that's how it closes the book. That was the end of the book that you just read, and I had that exact section— all underlined because uh, I was not going to let us conclude this podcast without reading that. Yeah. Um, what a great place to leave his audience, his readers, us uh, with this message that we look to Christ, mm-hmm. that all that, that it means to have a fulfilled life, um, to be what we were called to be, what we were created to be, all of that, guess what? It's not found in us. Mm-hmm. It's not found in ourselves. Yep. It's found by looking outside of ourselves to Christ. And with that, we find our true selves. Right. That's what he says. All, all right. the rest and, is thrown in. And that's confusing. I don't blame anyone who's missed it, but this is so crucial. You've got to stop seeking yourself. Uh, and, and, and in a world, I mean, it is literally a part of some, a big uh, point among sort of the therapeutic movement today that well, you got to go look for yourself and you've got to uh, take care of yourself and protect yourself and uh, look out for yourself and believe che- check, in yourself, check, check yourself and make sure. And, and it's just like, look, I see how you got there, but that's one of the worst things that you can do is be on an endless quest to find yourself as somebody who I've lived, I've tried to live by this paradigm and you get these weird ideas. Like, I guess I haven't sat by enough uh, mountain lakes reflecting on me. Like, no, if you ever get to do that, you will find quickly, I don't know who I actually am. I have ideas. I don't know where I got them. I, I, I certainly don't think it's as simple as like, oh, well, I, they're my own ideas and I'm right about everything. No, that, that, no, that's not the way it works. And sitting by more mountain lakes is not going to help you to solve that. Um, this is... The, I, what I can say about this is, look, I know it sounds challenging to say, hey, stop looking for yourself. Stop protecting yourself. And, and even, I mean, where are we now that the self-care movement, uh, why, don't, why don't you try this? Ask yourself, who is this Jesus that people talk about? Look to sources like the Gospels. See what he does. Be open about what? 
what a strange thought that these Christians have that I can actually encounter this Christ. And that, frankly, I mean, as a guy who does not, uh, still to this day, I don't hear, hey, I got a book, I'm going to give it to you, and, I'm, uh, and I know you'll love it. It's like, ooh, I'm so not sure that I will love it. <laughs> right. uh, books, I, I don't just look at books. I don't go to the library and just kind of look at all down the rows and go, I'd love to read every one of these. Like, that's not how it is. Um, and so you might be handed a Bible and not necessarily go, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to work. But I'm telling you, as a person who was very skeptical and went, I, I'll try this, I tried it. And I'm telling you, something happens. You read, and, and especially as you see Jesus in action, this is more than words on a page. Uh, this Jesus, this Holy Spirit, God the Father, they are at work in this world, and this is how they choose to work, through the Bible, mm-hmm. through the church, through the gospel message as it goes forward. Try it out. Yeah. I, this, I, I'm not saying, in theory, you ought to just believe all this. I'm saying give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Because it is something meant to be tried, not just to be theorized about. And frankly, one of the things you'll see if you look into church history is a lot of people have theorized about it way more than they have tried it, and that's a part of the problem. Oh, yeah. Still happens today. Still happens today. Yeah, I, it, you're exactly right. Um, th- this is not merely a book. It is the Bible is what I'm talking about. Um, mere Christianity is merely a book. <laughs> uh, it's a good book, it but, uh, but it is merely a book. Uh, but the Bible is not merely a book. It is the Word of God, and the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged short sword. It cuts all the way to through bone and marrow. Uh, it cuts to the very center of who we are. And so, um, yeah, take up and read yeah. God's Word. And if you have time after that, take up and read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I think you will also be blessed as we have. Because, um, you know, we haven't exhausted this book. We've said a lot about this book, but we have not exhausted it. And so... Um, yeah, I don't know if there's any more that you want to add. I was I was happy to conclude with his final words. I thought that was fantastic and and a good place to end um, his book and even uh, our podcast. You know what? Then that's uh, why don't you read those one more time? Read those last words, uh, and that'll be our end. Okay, here it is one more time. Give up yourself, and you will find your your real self. Lose yourself, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have, excuse me, nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find Him, and with Him, everything else thrown in. Well, this has been Empires of the Future. And we'll see you in the future.